Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 65. I'll ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 65. And then we'll be going over to Romans chapter 10, 16 through 11, 10. So a lot of page turning, a lot of reading this morning. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out in pain of heart and shall wail for for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by their name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Amen and praise God. Now to Romans uh, chapter 10. Romans 10, beginning in verse 16. And there's Paul speaking of uh, Israel's hardness of heart, and he says this, but they have not obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to all the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah, so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people from for whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says to Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? God says, I've kept my 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it is no longer by the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Amen and praise God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. And I thank you for your word, Lord. I just pray that you would be with us, that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, hearts to truly understand, minds that are engaged, and and just growing in our knowledge, our understanding, our love, and our outworking, our living for you, Christ Jesus. So please bless us. Please be with me. Help me to bring forth your message, Lord God, in a way that's honoring and pleasing to you and helpful for us. 
Help us to be engaged, to listen, Lord, to learn, to be challenged, to grow in Jesus Christ, to rely on him more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, man, when we started Romans, I knew it would be exciting and challenging, and it has been all of that. And we're thinking about the big doctrines, you know, everything that you have to tackle as you're going through Romans, which is wonderful, you know, especially as a Reformed pastor. I love chapter 1. We talk about our state apart from God, our total depravity, that we are sinners, man, and we're just lost and hopeless without Christ. But then the good news comes, right, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, these wonderful teachings, doctrine, our sanctification, growing in Christ, putting off sin, living for Jesus Christ. You know, they're sometimes difficult to hear, but they're so satisfying. Even when we talk about predestination, that God is in charge of all things, that he's holy, righteous, and just. You know, election, which we're talking about now, and we will continue to be talking about, but what a wonderful deep doctrine that is as well. But I have to tell you, when I came to Romans 11, really not anticipating this, how, at least for me, see these other things we've talked about, these other doctrines, I love those. We're preaching those. Amen. Praise God. But now, this is more difficult. When we come to talk about Israel, what about Israel, especially in the context in which we live as Christians and have lived, you know, the last hundred years or so, what is the nature of the church? What is the nature of Israel? Is God done with Israel? What's happening there? These are questions that are very, very relevant for us and important to us. And challenging, I'm telling you, because now it's not just the, the predestination and the election. Now it's the ecclesiology, and that's the doctrine of the church, the nature of the church, who who are God's people. And it also brings in our eschatology, right? How, how are things going to end? What's this look like? What does God have for the future, especially with Israel? So Paul here is speaking. Um, what I'm going to do today... <clears throat> I just feel that I need to lay the groundwork. I'm not really going to dive into the text per se. We'll be doing that over the next couple of weeks. But today, I just want to lay the groundwork so you kind of understand where we are coming from, where we're going in all of this. Because there are some questions to be answered in terms of Israel, national Israel, physical, spiritual Israel, who's Israel. So today's going to be more of a ground-laying type of message and then next week we'll really dive into the text um, that I just read and the uh, rest of chapter 11 as well. So, Paul is speaking to his kinsmen according to the flesh. What's that mean? He is speaking to unbelieving ethnic Jews. Paul's a believer right now. But now he's talking and thinking about, at this point, to those who are he's ethnically tied to, related to, but not spiritually at this point, because Paul's a believer, they're not. So he's talking to them, and you remember in verse 9, he said, I love, I would give up my own salvation if God would reveal himself to them. So much I love my kinsmen of the flesh. And it was because God had chosen them out of all the nations, gave, given them privileges, promises, and so forth, to be a light unto the nations, all of those good things. So, we understand that election explains why up to this point so few of the Jews had come to faith, right? The hope was still held, held out for them. But Paul's hope was that there would be a great many, uh, a great time where many, many, many of his kinsmen of the flesh would come to Christ. We're going to see that as we go through 11. But even in verse 9, he says this of um, chapter 10, I'm sorry, verse 19 of chapter 10, he says, but I asked, it is will not understand. Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. This is one reason. He's saying, look, I'm going to make you 
jealous. I'm going to show my love, my grace, and my mercy to people that aren't seeking me, to people who aren't coming out. You guys should know because you have everything. You have the promises. You have the oracles. You have the testimonies, all those things, the prophets and so forth. But I'm going to make you jealous by going to those who do not know me because you're going to see what you're missing. You know, and we could relate to that a little bit when we talk about uh, maybe you've neglected your spouse over the years, and then somebody comes along and shows that attention to your spouse, and you kind of get jealous. Say, man, you're showing this attention, and and so that you know I, that's going to make me more attentive towards my towards my wife. Hopefully, in that way, that's kind of the idea here. Again, we're going to dig into this more uh, as we move on. Verse twenty is God's sovereign grace. I've been found by those who do not seek me. I've shown myself to those who've not asked for me. Again, it's that kind of thing where you have kids raised up in the church, all the privileges we love, we pray for them, and they reject God. And then you have the atheists that want nothing to do with God, and all of a sudden they're loving and trusting God, on fire for the Lord, and so on and so forth. So it's that kind of idea. But the big question is, I'm going to focus on, we're going to be focusing on, actually, because we're in the text, because this is where we're at as we're going through Romans, does it mean, does this mean, because God has shown his love to the Gentiles, to those who haven't sought him, does it mean that God's rejected the Jews? His people. Now that, that's a, man, that's a loaded question. That's a very, it's harder than you think. We can give easy answers, but it's a, that's very difficult to answer. Hopefully we will as we go through this chapter. It's a little tricky. It's a little dicey. I gotta tell you, uh, working through this and praying through this. Cause anyone asks, who are the people of God? Right? Who is true Israel? Who is Israel? What's the nature of the church? That's what that's talking about, the actual nature of the church. Eschatology plays a role. Eschatology, your end times view, informs how you answer that question on who are the people of God. You see how this gets? And it gets, gets a little messy, gets a little sticky for us as Christians, especially as we have brothers and sisters that believe differently as, than we do in certain ways. So for instance, uh, we have dispensational perspective. How many of you understand what, when I talk about dispensational Premillennial dispensation, that's what is. I need a show of hands just so you know. Okay, that's, that is a view of the end times. How Christ is going to come back, how he's going to deal with Israel. This chapter is tied into that. Many other passages, scripture passages are as well. But this, this is a part of that and what forms that kind of thinking of the end times. What, what it's going to look like when Christ comes back. Now, dispensationalism was a very much the majority report. We have a little bit younger congregation, but for those of you over 50, you know dispensationalism very well, don't you? I mean, maybe even younger, but especially if you're over 50, because it was the majority report for the longest time in the church. Schofield Reference Bible, most people had that growing up. Um, most of the popular radio, television preachers that you would hear were dispensational in their eschatology. The late great planet Earth, if you're old enough to remember that. If you're not old enough to remember that, I'm sure you remember Left Behind series. That's all dispensational thought, like how it's going to end, how God's going to come back, how he's going to deal with his people. So what I want to do this morning, again, just laying that foundation, is give you an outline, because this is very important on how we view the nature of the church, nature of God's people, right? What about Israel today? These are questions that we need to deal with. So just an outline, and I know that I'm not going to do justice. If you're a dispensationalist, if you have that in your background, you know how extensive it is. What I want to do is just give a the best that I can, best to my ability, outline of the dispensational system, how God's going to come and deal with his people, and 
so you know, and setting up for what we're going to be going through in chapter 11. So first of all, big, big point with dispensational theology, dispensationalism is that Israel and the church are distinct. That's a big, big deal. Israel refers to the physical descendants of Abraham, to the nation of Israel, for the dispensationalists, so you understand that. The church began at Pentecost on that day, is when the church began. Dispensationalists believe that there's one salvation for sure, we're all saved in Jesus Christ, but God does have two different plans. He does have a plan for physical Israel, he has a plan for the church as well, so there's a distinction there. Some would say he has two peoples. Technically, as one person, he does have two plans and different purposes for those people. What happened, again, just general overview, overview. Israel rejects her Messiah. Messiah comes to Israel. Israel rejects him. What happens? He turns from Israel to the nations. He goes to the nations. He goes to the Gentiles. So right now, right now, from Pentecost till now, this is... and continuing till the rapture, we're living in what's called the time of the Gentiles or the church age. So this is the, the, the church age for us. It is really a parenthesis in the plan of God. God was dealing with Israel. Israel rejected him, saying, no way, don't want you, you know, to the cross. So he says, no, I'm done with you guys for right now, Israel. I'm going to come back to you. But for right now, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And this is that time, ostensibly. Again, there's some overlap. There are definitely Jews who trust in, in the Lord Jesus Christ but not what's anticipated. And part of that's from what Paul says, where all Israel is going to be saved. I know this sounds a little academic, but it's important to lay the foundation, to lay the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about especially. So, parentheses in God's plan. The church age ends when? When we're raptured out. And that's imminent. It's at any time. So even right now, you know, you could, you've seen those car, the bumper stickers back in the day said, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, you know, just something like that. So we're all going to be taken up in the rapture. Uh, and at that point, God's attention is going to turn back to the nation of Israel, to the un- ostensibly unbelieving Jews in that way, because the church is going to be in heaven with the Lord. Church age ends with the rapture. Attention turned back to Israel, which is leads right into the seven-year tribulation period. The trial, And again, for all this, the dispensationists will have scripture. I don't want to do an injustice to them. The, you know, back it up. There's, there's real belief here in this. But that inaugurates a seven-year tribulation period. It's especially hard on the Jewish people as Antichrist comes onto the scene, the false prophets. Um, much of Israel will be at this time converted, though. Kind of Romans 11 plays into that a little bit. At the end of the tribulation period, Christ returns. The battle of Armageddon takes place. Christ defeats Antichrist and the false prophet. The temple then is rebuilt in Jerusalem. And even now, if you talk to your dispensationalist friends, they'll tell you, we got the right heifers. We, the temple is, we have the instruments. And one time I asked one of my friends, cause I love my dispensational brothers and sisters. We have conversations. Sometimes it gets a little dicey, but, um, so what about what about the priesthood? What about the Levites? Oh, DNA, you know, we have it there. So they're really sitting. It's it's really in, embedded. And there are people on on the spectrum, you know, people just 
casually believe in it. Then you have your hardcore dispensationalists, just like your all mills and post mills as well. But nevertheless, the temple's rebuilt, thousand year reign of Christ, sacrifices reinstituted. And I ask that too. Why do we need sacrifice? Well, they're just memorials. They don't mean what they meant back in the Old Testament pointing to Christ, but they're memorials. So there'll be a thousand year reign of peace in that way. After that, Satan is loosed for a time, and then comes the final defeat of Satan and his minions, the great white throne judgment, new heavens and new earth. Now, I know that's a, a, a brief overview, and we can't get into the weeds on that, but that is, is the view. Now, our dispensationalist friends will say that many that do not hold to this view hold or believe what's called replacement theology. How many of you heard of replacement theology? Yeah, we're getting a little in the weeds here, just a little bit though. Replacement theology says this. You guys that do not believe in the dispensational view, the rapture, so on and so forth, all you, what you believe is that Israel, church, I'm sorry, the church has replaced Israel. That's it. The church has totally replaced Israel. There's no need. The church is the new Israel, as a matter of fact, in that way. So the church is Israel. Basically, God is done with the nation. There's nothing else. Israel is just like any other nation. They're just a pagan nation that needs the gospel, that needs the Lord. Nothing special about them. Their time is up with God in that way from being a special people. Okay, That's not true. Um, here's what we believe. We believe that there's continuity between the Old and New Testament. We see not as replacement, but as fulfillment theology or completion or fullness of the covenant promises, the ceremonial laws, the types and the shadows, everything in the Old Testament. The true church consists of all his chosen people in all places, throughout all ages, throughout all history. Pentecost absolutely was the fuller picture of this fulfillment in that, in that regard. But it's a fuller picture of the promises, of the hope, of the covenant that God made with his people as those who constitute his people. Just like we read in uh, 21. But of Israel, he says, oh, I'm sorry, he says in 20, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself for those who did not ask me. I've gone to the Gentiles in that way. So even in the Old Testament, there was always a promise and hope that God would have his people in that way. Abraham was justified by faith. We know that. As he looked forward to God, Hebrews um, chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. I'm not going to read from that, but you could go back and read actually the whole book of Hebrews, but especially Hebrews 11. By faith, they were believing, they were looking forward to the promises of Christ. Abraham stood as our covenant head. God revealed himself to Abraham, gave him promises of redemption, promised him a seed, and he would have a people. Ultimately, who was that seed? Galatians 3. 1619, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring who is Christ. So ultimately, Christ is the promise and the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the person and work of Christ. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He would redeem all those under the law. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why, um, this is why it is through him that we utter our amen and glory for his, amen to God for his glory. In addition to this, all the Old Testament ceremonies, all the Old Testament, um, feast, ta- feasts, functions, pointed to and typified the person and work of Christ. You have to understand that's very important to this. All of those things that we see in the Old Testament, the entire ceremonial law, 
pointed for, typified Christ. That's why we don't bring animals here to slaughter them on these days. That's why we just come and bring ourselves as a living sacrifice, hopefully, to the Lord. He truly, really, actually fulfilled all of these things. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, they had the temple. The old temple was a beautiful structure that actually pointed to, typified the person and work of Jesus Christ. You can go through the temple and look at the aspects of the temple, what it represented, what it meant, and it all points and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Amen? And how do we even know this? And in John chapter 2, the Pharisees were getting on Jesus after he cleansed the temple, and he said, so the Jews said to him, what sign are you going to show us for doing these things? Why are you coming in here and acting like this is your place? Like, you know, you're overturning the tables, driving people out. Jesus said to them, he answered them, said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. What temple was Jesus talking about? He was talking about his body, himself. He is the personification. He is the, the true fulfillment of that temple. Tear this temple down, and in three days I'll raise it up. They didn't even think, like, like, are you kidding me? It took all these years to build up. But he was talking, and his disciples remembered after he was resurrected that he would be raised up in three days. In other words, there's no need for a temple. Why would we go back and build another temple just for certain people in this way? Christ is the temple, so that's it. And that temple was destroyed. Everything that the temple spoke to and pointed to and promised is found in the work of Jesus Christ and his love for us. So the feast and the sacrifice, all the sacrifices, find their fullness in Christ, and they teach us about Christ. Right? Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily at the service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. So every single day, not just at the feast, but every day, offerings were made around the clock, blood being spread, blood, 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 blood. What was that showing? What was that teaching the people? What were they learning? That there was one who was going to make that sacrifice, that final true sacrifice, because that can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for one time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. you understand? you see that? That's a beautiful fulfillment in Christ. We're not going to go back to the temple. What's that going to show? What's that going to point to? Christ has already fulfilled that. Christ has already done that. There's no need for a temple, no need to go back in that way. On the Day of Atonement, what did the priest do? He would take two animals. One was a bull, one was a goat. He would take the bull, put hands on him, confess the sins of the people in that way, and then that bull would be slaughtered. That bull would be sacrificed. The blood would be shed, and that was showing the blood being shed for the forgiveness of sins, the propitiation, the satisfying of God's righteous wrath for us as sinners. That's what that was. And when you're watching that, that's the sign. That's the fulfillment. That's what it's pointing to. That's what they were teaching and learning, that this animal being slain, his blood being poured out, is showing me that one is going to come and truly do that for me. And his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Then he would take the goat, and he would put his hand on the goat, and he would confess the sins of all the people. And they would take that goat out into the desert and let that goat go. That was called the scapegoat because it bore the guilt of the sin of all the people, and they took it away. So our guilt is gone. So not only is propitiation made, God's wrath satisfied, but the guilt of our sin is taken away to be remembered no more. Only in Jesus Christ could that happen. Amen. Why would we bring that back? Why would you do that again if it's already been fulfilled in Christ? He also perfectly fulfilled the offices of prophet, priest, and king. No need to bring back the priesthood. What would it do? What purpose would it serve? They were pointing to Christ the whole time. 
The book of Hebrews tells us. See, this is where we are coming from as, you know, as your pastor and ostensibly as the church. It's kind of the difference between dispensationalism and where we stand. So Hebrews has no use. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrew, there's no use looking back. There's no use going back. What were the people in Hebrews, he's writing to these people saying, you know what, this Christianity thing is tough. It's hard, man. It's, 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 it's difficult to be a Christian. There's persecution. There's hardship. I'm losing my thing. I just want to go back to Israel. I want to go back to how it was, man. And I was comfortable and we could, and the writer of Hebrews says, there's nothing to go back to, man. What are you going to go back to? Everything's been fulfilled. Everything is obsolete. The one who is greater is here. He's the greater one. He's the one who's fulfilled all these things. There's nothing to go back to. He is the Savior. What about the people of God? In Luke 2, 28-32, in Simeon, he says, he took Jesus, This it was Jesus, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, right, as Jesus is born, and to the glory of your people Israel. So there it is. We see the two starting to become one. In Matthew one twenty one, we are told that she'll bear a son, and you call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John 3.16 tells us who are his people. God so loved the world. The world means people from every different place in this on this planet. Every different tongue, every different nation. Okay? Not just one specific ethnic group in that way. God loved the world, all kinds of people, that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Acts, we see it consisted, the church consisted of Jews and Greeks. Like in Romans, there was a lot of Jewish people there. It wasn't exclusively a Jewish church. There were Gentiles as well. Christians, one people. I do want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, because this is definitive. When we talk about the people of God, who are the people of God? Right? We're going to see there's one per, one people of God. Am I making the case? You guys getting this a little bit? Let's see. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So there were Gentiles. Israel had the promises, had the oracles of God, had the prophets, had all those advantages, those privileges. He said, you were you were strangers and aliens to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ... Christ Jesus, who you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made, and here it is, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. There's one, one church, one people of God in that way, those who trust in Christ. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and he preached peace to those who were to who were far off, and peace to those who were near. So the Gentiles and the Jews. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. So there it is. It's just so plain. This is, these are the people of God. This is who we are in Christ. Acts the church consisted of Jews and Greeks. All which Israel represented as a nation and anticipated was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There's one body, not two peoples. Dispensation won't say there's two peoples, but not two plans or two purposes. The church of Christ are those truly regenerated from all ages, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I believe that very strongly in my, in, in my heart of hearts. And I want to point out beyond this, in addition to all this, who is true Israel? Who is Israel? Let's try to answer that. Yeah, when we get deeper into this, we'll hopefully come into a clearer picture. But even now, when Scripture talks about a true Jew, who's a true Jew? Is it a nation? Is it the person who lives in the nation? Are they a true Jew ethnically? Or is it a true Jew, one who believes in Jesus Christ? Romans 2, 28, 29, we know this. We've read this before. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. That's ethnically Jew, born as a Jewish person into Jewish family. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. It was outward and physical, but true circumcision is inward, or salvation is truly inward. So he says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So you see, man, that's a true Jew. So you're a true Jew if you're in Jesus Christ. That's what it means, like your heart has been circumcised. It's not just outward, it's inward. We're converted. We're in him. That's it. It goes on, and we we read this as well, chapter 9. Verse 6 and 7. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's saying, look, it's really, and we've talked about this, we preached on this, you go back and listen to the sermons, but it's those who truly believe in Christ that are true children of Abraham. Understand? But it is, it is tricky because there still is ethnic Israel, and that's the, the idea out here. Ephesians. Um, oh, I read from Ephesians 2. So, so that's, that's the idea. And that is the church. Now, having said all of this, and believe all this, there's a tension. <laughs> there's a real tension. Because in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul is speaking to the kinsmen of his flesh, to, to ethnic Israel. Not believers, but he's speaking to his kinsmen. And and it's not just it's not just because of of the ethnicity. It's not hey man, I'm Italian. I want all Italy to be saved, and you know because they're my kinsmen of the flesh. Yeah, okay, a little bit, but really underneath that, it's because of their special place in God's plan of salvation. And Paul knew that as a nation, even unbelieving nation, God used them. Not everybody was saved in Israel all the time. God used them to bring forth that light that the nations needed. He gave them the promises, and Paul's feeling that. And he's saying there's something about Israel in that way. And that's, again, we're going to get into this as we go through chapter 11, but it's something we do have to really deal with. Although unbelieving, there is a connection. God did choose 
the nation and entrusted them with the ordinances, the privileges, the promises that we benefit from directly, hasn't he? And we must never forget that. We need to always remember that as Christians. There is a connection to that. Again, this is dicey as as we think about it. Now, having said that, the relationship between the Jews and the Christians over the millennia has been a mixed bag, to say the least, huh? How have we thought about national Israel as a church? And you understand, hopefully, where we are spiritually coming from and thinking and speaking to, but there is that sense. And Paul's speaking to that very plainly here in chapter 11, and you're going to see that as we go through it, but how are we as Christians to react to to national Israel? Because we know, okay, we're all true Jews who believe in Christ, and we're all one in Christ, absolutely, but there is that people, there is that nation. Paul's talking about that. There is that group. And through the years, we've had a mixed bag. Hasn't there been a mixed bag with, with the, with, with Israel, with the Jews and the Christians? And, and all of this, what I'm saying from here pretty much to the end of the message, I want you to see God's providence in all of this with national Israel as well. Again, has it always been a cozy relationship between Jewish people and Christians? The ones who had the or, or, ordinances, oracles, and so forth? No. We can always think about the Spanish Inquisition. That's a big deal. I know it was all those years ago in the 1390s, but that was a big deal, and it remains an issue today because what was happening in Spain, they were saying to Jews and other populations as well, uh, Muslims and so forth, but they were saying specifically to Jews, guess what? You need to be baptized. You need to be baptized and become Roman Catholic. And if you refuse to do that, guess what we're going to do? We're going to, you know, expel you from the country, we are going to force baptisms on you, and if you don't capitulate and you know you aren't fortunate enough to be exiled, we will torture you and we will kill you. Read about the Spanish Inquisition. That's true. And what happened to the Jews? Jews remember that to this day, the nation of Israel. What about Martin Luther? We come to the Reformation. I love Martin Luther. We love Luther for what he has done for us. We are indebted to him for uh, what, what happened, what what he started in the Reformation and how he carried that through and the boldness in, in which he um, brought forth the truth of the gospel and getting back to that. So we're certainly indebted to Luther, but we're always, we have to be honest. We have to face the facts. Martin Luther, towards the end of his life, initially he had strong, um, good feelings for, for the Jewish people. You know, they're, they're like Romans 11, you know, kinsmen of the flesh need to kind of what I'm saying here right now, but towards the end of his life, he really turned on the Jews. Martin Luther did, and he wrote this down, and we have it in writing, we have it in books, that he ended up hating the Jews. He wanted the Jews to be expelled from Germany. He he said that houses should be burned, synagogues should be burned, business should be burned, the Jews should be gone. Almost 500 years after that, guess who used that, Luther's writings, to justify some of the atrocities against the Jews? That's right. It was the Nazis and Hitler. Absolutely. This is just true. Just facts. We have to understand that. Um, understand, understand that fact. So we have that. Now, on the other side of that, we have evangelicals who since, especially since 1948, 
hold Israel in the highest esteem. Like they kind of almost exalt Israel above all things. Some of my dispensationalist friends, it's all about Israel. Watch Israel. As Israel goes, we need to love Israel. No question, like, like Zionism in that way. Just everything is Israel, Israel, Israel. And you watch that, you kind of almost take your eyes off of Christ and the word. And they just hold them in the highest esteem and be- because they believe it's connected to prophecy and the second coming of Christ. You need to know something about Israel today, you know, back in the land for sure, but they are... They're, they're a secular nation, for real. They're a progressive nation. They're pluralistic. They really are. They're, there's no real love. It's not like, oh, and not many Jews are really embracing Christians. As a matter of fact, Orthodox Jews are really harsh on Christians there. And you could not take my word for it. You could look it up. So we paint this picture. Oh, Israel's on our team. Oh, we love these guys. Hey, you know, this is, it's really a mixed bag for sure. And their nation certainly is way far away from the Lord, even the Yahweh. You know, they're ostensibly very progressive in, in, in that way. Now, having said that, we ought to have regard for Israel, I think, like Paul. And that's going to be my argument through this, that we need to have regard for that, for that people like Paul does with the hope of seeing mass conversions because they need Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm going to kind of close here in the next several minutes. But, and again, I want you to see the providence of God. If you note the history of the nation of the people, of Israel. It's, it's hard. And again, we're talking ethnic Israel. Apart from those who've come to Jesus Christ, it's hard to deny or see the hand of God in that for better, for his hard providence as well as his sustaining providence of that nation. Um, beginning in 70 AD, what happened? Do you remember? In Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was over to, overthrown. And what happened to the Jews at that point? They were scattered from 70 AD, AD 70, scattered gone throughout the world, all over the place, dispersed, right? Persecuted, different, the wandering Jews. And yet, through all of that, they were able to maintain their identity. It's interesting. So many ancient civilizations have come and gone. You know, when we read scripture, you've heard of the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. We go on and on and on. Where are they? Those, those civilizations are extinct. Oh, you might have a remnant here or something there way back, but the Jews are intact. It's amazing. To know, especially with the plight, you know, out of their land, expelled from their own land. Through the millennia, there have been waves of anti-Semitism, waves and waves. People wanting to persecute and exterminate the Jews. After World War II, what was the, what was the slogan? Do you remember the slogan? Never again. Never again. Well, guess what? It's ramping up once again right now in our time. In our time. Right here. You can talk all you want about the geopolitics regarding Israel and Palestinian, the state and the land and so forth. But what's happening right now is extremely, if you're a Christian, it's extremely disconcerting. It needs to be. I'm telling you, in light of the absolutely unwarranted atrocities that took place. Now listen, even in war, you don't do that. There are rules to combat, but it doesn't matter. Right? They, they, this is, you're seeing the wanton destruction of an entire ethnic group. That's what's happening here. And it is, there's, there are atrocities, blatant disregard for life, sheer evil. If you've seen any of the videos, and if you, you know, you, it's demonically inspired events that took place on October 7th. Absolutely. There's no question. If you've seen anything, if you've taken the time to look, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the response around the world has been stunning. 
It's been stunning. Of course, there's been some shock and some sympathy, but listen to me and listen good. Overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, it has been anti-Semitic. Without compassion, without sympathy, and without sorrow. You see this everywhere. It's, there's a sick joy, a vitriol that's going on, a hatred to, towards the Jews around the world. Check out what's going on. I'm not saying Israel doesn't have sympathizers or people that are concerned about them. But in light of what happened, it's just amazingly stunning that there hasn't been more of a, a reaction towards compassion and caring and looking towards, but instead you're seeing the opposite. Look at governments. Look at places like the UN. Look at places like our university campuses. You have people, you have NYU, you have a group of Jews in a library locked in there with Palestinian protesters pounding on the window, threatening them. Right now, right here, everywhere in our nation. And it's ramping up. And it's coming again. Do you understand? Universities on the streets. We see it. So there's something there. It's still there. And just so you know, this is just a little sidebar real quick. When it comes to Islam, by the way, first it's the Jews and then it's the Christians. So don't think we're far behind. First it's the Jews, then it's the Christians. Well, as we prepare to dive into the section, I am, personally, I'm with many of the Reformers, many of the Puritans, Many of the Reformed Bible teachers, when it comes to national Israel, and this is the tenor, that's what I want to leave you with this morning. None of these men were dispensational, far from it. They were Reformed in their thinking. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in 1864, says this. He was preaching in Ezekiel 38, but also referencing Romans 11, saying, he believed that, quote, there will be a political restoration back in the land, followed by a spiritual restoration or conversion, preceding the second coming of Christ. That's Spurgeon. John Owen, profound Puritan, favorite of so many of us, the depth that he shares and has, says this, There shall come a time, there shall be a time during the continuance of the kingdom of Messiah in this world when the generality of the Jews all over the world shall be called and effectually brought to the knowledge of Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, with which mercy they shall also receive deliverance from their captivity, restoration to their own land, with a blessed, flourishing, and happy condition therein. J.C. Ryle, writing in the mid-1800s, said, I believe, quote, I believe that the Jews shall ultimately be gathered again as a separate nation, restored to their own land, and converted to faith in Christ. Again, preceding the second coming of Christ. Many others, we can go on and on with quotations, including Calvin, how this idea or forms of this idea. So, whatever the case, our duty is clear as Christians that we are to preach the gospel. I think there are too many Christians today that count the Jews almost as de facto Christians. You know, they're this holy nation and, you know, Israel is always right and never can never be wrong. That's not true. But the other side, we have to be careful too because there are some Christians who basically no concern at all for Israel or for the Jewish people and that heritage that we have. And we have to really wrestle with that. And Paul here does have that desire to see his kinsmen of the flesh, those who are given the oracles of God to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I think we, like Paul, need to appreciate their place in God's plan, purpose, and so pray for their conversion. 
So again, starting next week, we'll dive into especially chapter 11 and flesh this out. Let's pray.